Reading for you now and preaching for you, Acts 19, verses 21 through 41, the end of the chapter. Hear now the very word of God. But after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And at that time, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even disposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciple would not, disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that none of these things can be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious sacrilegious or blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the proconsuls, let them bring the charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we could come together today and to hear this story, to chew on it, to meditate on it, to dwell upon it, 
And we pray that the same spirit that moved this church, that furthered your kingdom, that brought people to repentance and faith, would continue to strengthen and do the same to us, that we would be moved by your word and spirit this day, according to the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I know it's a bit of a long passage, but uh, there is ways. That, there are ways to break this up into different focuses. But it's a kind of a, a nice narrative to bring on all together. Um, it's one particular story, and it's a. Uh, it may seem on the surface to be um, kind of a hard particular narrative to 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 get a lot from because there, in this particular case, there is no specific sermon or teaching coming out of the mouth of Paul or any of the disciples. This is all activity, and really the the pagans are the ones who have the stage. They're the ones who are talking. And so we're watching a display. We're watching actions. We're watching contrast. We're actually looking at the effects of what is happening preceding that, what the ministry Paul had as he is in Ephesus, and Paul and the other disciples who were ministering to the Ephesians. This is an impact that it had, and so it's teaching us more of a contrasting response by looking at the narrative. And so as a church, we want to see, one, what God is displaying and proclaiming in the narrative, but also how we should reflect and how things should look for us, um, how things should look according to us when we look at the response of the world when the proclamation is being proclaimed. And it's an interesting contrast to how the Spirit acted in the preceding story because if you remember, Paul was doing magnificent, not um, extraordinary and magnificent, um, works by the Spirit and how he was healing people. If you remember that even the, the, the rags and the aprons that he would wear for work, that they were taking that and taking it to the people who were sick or who were possessed by demons, and they were being healed and being released by the captivities of the demons just from that. So there was a very strong, extraordinary sign that God's presence was with the ministry of Paul and the disciples at this particular time. But here is a very interesting contrast in pace and tone. When we see here how Luke has laid this out for us, it says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. That doesn't seem very extraordinary. <laughs> it sounds like it's just a, a planning. You know, it, it's, it's actually kind of like, well, wonder why that's even in there. It's kind of mundane. Um, it says, though, that Paul in the spirit was resolved to make a plan to travel and to have two of his helpers go into Macedonia. And then he decided he was going to stay there in Ephesus for a while. That is by the Spirit that Paul is making this conclusion. This preparation and planning that Paul is working on in the ministry is by the Spirit. Now, a lot of times when we talk about the Holy Spirit, 
We like the things that are the extraordinary. I know I keep mentioning this throughout the book of Acts, but this is a very highlighted element of understanding the mundaneness of the work of the Spirit through the work and the ministry of the church. Paul was planning. He was organizing. He was making an, he had anticipation. He was thinking through the needs of those throughout Europe that needed to hear the gospel and how he was going to go back to Jerusalem and then go to Rome. He had all of this in his mind, planning by the actual work of the Spirit. And we don't normally think about that. Planning is also an act of the Spirit for God's people, making a ministry plan. He sent helpers. He decided to have certain time periods of staying there. Paul is working ministry, and the movement of the Spirit is also within the providence of God for this moment. And so him being there at this moment is a a necessary component, even though he is not about to preach. He will actually leave without being able to say anything. He will go to the next, and when we go into the next chapter, we will move on from Ephesus, hit the, the next few verses. There is no activity of Paul or any of the disciples making any kind of proclamation, but this is still a work of the Spirit for the church. Now, it's important to keep that as an undergirding element of what we are seeing here as we see this place, because a lot of times we think, well, okay, well, if, if, if God's not doing his extraordinary work, then maybe he's not there. No, God is obviously wanting us to see this particular narrative. It's a big chunk of the passage here is about this conflict this contrast of what's going on after what had happened um, earlier on in Ephesus. And so we see here that the results of the way, it says, caused no little disturbance. And you see Paul playing with the words here, because we see there in that verse in verse 23, is also in contrast with verse 24, that when we are introduced to this guy, Demetrius, that he brought no little business in making idols to Artemis. So we're seeing this contrast that the way did no little disturbance, meaning it had a significant disturbance to those in Ephesus. And Demetrius was making no little business. He was making no little profit. He was making a lot of profit through the work of making idols. He was very much about the idolatry of those people And so his profit was at stake. And we see that there's going to be a clash, a clash of the way, which are the Christians, which is the church, is going to clash with what's going on in that particular culture. And the problem is, as we see from Demetrius says, he says that Paul is teaching that God, gods made with hands are no gods. That this is the principle of, in the theology that is coming from Paul, that this has had an impact upon the Ephesians. It's also had an impact of all of Asia and throughout the world. And he is very concerned because they're beginning to lose profit. Now, we know that in other accounts, one with the Jews in chapter 7, that Paul told them that the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. It's the same theme. But this time, he's actually preaching to the Jews who was wanting to continue on in their religion of worshiping God in a particular temple in a particular way. That God has really never been constrained to the temple in of itself. 
And then to the Greeks in chapter 17, verses 24 through 25, he says, The God and Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made by man or served by human hands as though he needed anything, for he is the one who gives life and breath. And so with the Jews, he's reminding them that God is not constrained to the things that they make. And with the Greeks, he's saying that the creator of the world, the one who actually gives life and breath, is not constrained to the things that you have made with your hands. The very strong highlighting point in the message that we see continuing throughout Paul's ministry is that you don't have God in your box. You do not have God in your image. That God is the creator. He is the one who is most high. He is over all the gods. He is the creator and the giver of life. And that particular theology and preaching that Paul had been doing was having an impact on the people. God was drawing his people to himself. And it was causing a major disturbance amongst the pagan religion there in Ephesus. Now, it's important when we see this to go back and think again about what is the way doing. So we know what the, the message is that Paul had said, but here we're not seeing a, a message other than that gods made with hands are not gods. But what is the way actually doing? I just want to do a quick recap of last week's definition of the way in chapter 9-5. It's Christ-centric. Jesus acknowledges that the way is associated with him. He is merging the two, that Jesus is being displayed and presented to the world by the way, by the church. In verse 2 of chapter 9, that they were belonging to the church, meaning they were belonging to Christ and they were belonging together. This was an organized group of people who were together. It wasn't just individuals doing their own thing. They were belonging and merged, assembled together for the proclamation of the body of Christ. In chapter 24, 14, Paul explains in his defense when he says that he is a part of the way, that the reason why he, is a, he knows that he's a part of the way is that he worships along with a sect of people who worship Yahweh. This is a worshiping group of people, Christ-centric, belonging together, worshiping Yahweh, believing the law and the prophets, centered in the word of God, hoping in the resurrection, in seeking to live with a clear conscience before God and man while giving alms and offerings for the support of ministry and submitting to authority and obedience to the calling of God. And then we know that Paul leaves the way, he leaves the church with covenantal doctrines of Christ and the covenantal order of the life of the church. This is the ordinary life of the church. This is the way. I tried really hard last week not to make any Mandalorian um, comments. I had people afterwards saying, I kept hearing it in my head, so it didn't do me any good. This is the true way. And it's not just a philosophy. It is a people. It is a worshiping people. And this worshiping people that are being taught the word of God had no little disturbance on what was going on in Ephesus. The place that we should come to really quickly here is Are we causing no little disturbance in northeast Tennessee and southwest Virginia? Are we disturbing the pagan life that is still very rooted in our region? 
And you can see evidence of it every day. Jennifer and I got free tickets to go to the Rhythm and Roots on Friday, and we were able to go walk around. And I know that a lot of people are traveling from out of town and who come here, but just seeing the progression of change from what we've seen in the early 2000s when we used to go, where a lot of the music was a lot more gospel-centered, a lot more Christ-centered, that is, has that is begun to be watered out. And that the evidence of a very secularized, a very paganized way of thinking was very evident here. And still, I would say even today, very present here in the very center of our region in downtown Bristol. We are very much like the Ephesians today. The activity of Demetrius was that he was an idol factory. He created, he was, you know, this is very much a a, a very direct participation in idolatry. He is a silver idol factory bringing lots of business. I mean, that word there that's in in the Greek here for business is a merger of words of work and profit. It's not just profit, it's not just gain, it's not just money, it's not just monetary, but it's associating with this creating monetary usefulness by the work of your hands. His service, his actions, was producing a profit and a gain for him. And he was making a lot of business from this. Now, taking a moment to go back and think about Artemis for a minute, this is the only god in the New Testament that is named by name, that's given a name. There are a lot of gods, of course, throughout the, the Greek region and the Asian region, the Roman region, there are a lot of gods. But for some reason, in God's providence, he has given us here a designated name of this god. And this is Artemis. This is also known by the Roman name. Does anybody know the Roman name of Artemis? Is it just Artemis still? No, nope, this is the Greek name. The Greek name is Artemis. And, it's, and, and the goddess is goddess. I'm sorry, it's the goddess Artemis. For one thing, so it's a female god. It is the goddess Diana. A lot of people are more familiar with the Roman name, but they're the same. If you look at the writings and the histories of the goddess Diana and the goddess Artemis, they are the same. And like I mentioned last week, that this is a goddess who is considered to be the goddess of the moon. She's also the goddess of, of hunting and also fertility. Give me just a moment. No problem here. Okay. And she was the most popular goddess of that age throughout the whole known world. This was the biggest religion of that particular time. And I would say it's potentially still very much a very large religion today. That these particular people would go to Demetrius in this region to get these little icons, these little statues of Artemis, little statues of Diana, to bring into their home because she was known to be the one who would bring blessing and cursing upon the individual homes and lives of the people. Now, there in in Ephesus was the largest temple to Artemis or Diana. It was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. It was magnificent. It had 127 pillars, 60 feet high. And throughout the whole part of Asia, there were 33 shrines to 
to meet to um, to Artemis. But people had their own little version, their own little shrines in their home because the idea behind the the whole ideology behind Artemis is that she is the one who is going to bless and make their home fruitful. She was known to be the protector of nature, but she was also the hunter god of nature. And there's a lot of and I don't want to go through all the talking that I've read about um, Diana and Artemis, but I would encourage you to read up on, on Artemis because it's fascinating to see the different ways that she has been worshipped, even all the way up into present day. <clears throat> that the idea that she has this control of fertility, but she also has the control of death. She would also require human sacrifice. And throughout the history of the worship of Artemis, there has been human sacrifice. There was this whole concept of the worship of the female form and the uplifting of her strength. There's also this understanding that she has the control of protecting nature, but to use nature to even kill those in nature for the purposes that she has seen to be fit. For her particular magnificence. There are a lot of strange inconsistencies about Artemis, but we know that she has this one side of this graciousness, but also this vengeance. And there's also this very strong gender focus and confusion that goes wraps around this whole idea of the goddess Artemis. You probably can tell just from some of the explanations that even today, that some people, a lot of abortion advocates and femin- feminists, are very much fond of the goddess of Diana and Artemis. They see her to be a hero, that, they, that she's an I- ideology that matches, that they, to truly love their offspring, need to be able to have the power to both bless fertility and to kill it and to end it. They actually match that particular mindset throughout the history of her worship. But the way disturbed that for some reason. There were things that the way was doing that was turning people away from this being their sustenance and their hope. And we see from Demetrius that he highlights that the two primary concerns that he has is that we're losing profit. That our security, our provision, our power... Our sustenance is being lost by what the way is doing. Secondly, there is this loss of significance that they feared that they were going to that, that Artemis would lose her magnificence, that she would lose her glory. That there's some that the ideology that was behind it, that the, the purpose and significance would be lost by what the way was proclaiming, by what the church was proclaiming in the message of the gospel. So if you think about these two particular things, that there was this prophet and there was this religion, and that the worship of the Most High would surpass the value of the silver and of what they could receive in monetary gain from this particular worship. The worship of the Most High God surpassed the magnificence of where they considered their hope and their ideology. It was basically laying low what this God meant to them. But what we see is there's a lot more going on here than just some kind of ignorant worship of pieces of silver, 
There's something very demonic going on because of their response we see matches what the Bible teaches us as being from demonic forces and not from above. There is an ideology of worship behind these images. Don't allow even the proclamation that God's made by hands are not God's to make you think, well, there's no power here. There's no significance in Artemis. Well, we actually ought to see from this particular passage that the worship of Artemis, the worship of Diana, is very powerful. And it's something that we should be very concerned about. We see this very recently in the last narrative there, where when those who were watching Paul being able to release people from demons decided to try to take on that same power themselves. And the demon says, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but I do not know you. And it was one demon that was possessing one man was able to beat up six different men who were trying to mess and dabble with this particular power. Here in this particular situation, we see that even though they are not gods that are made by hands, there is still something behind this. And we should be looking for this even today. What is the ideology that is behind the heart of this that reveals what the real God is that they're worshiping? And we'll see this being laid forth by the work of the flesh. Because it is in the ideology that the heart is exposed, but in the works of the flesh, you can see the exposed the exposing of the heart. If you would turn to Romans chapter 1, in verse 18, we see Paul talking, when he's talking about the Romans, that this is the nature of what draws people to be in this kind of condition, in this kind of worship. And we need to highlight some of the things that are in Romans chapter 1 to understand what's going on here in Ephesus. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The ideology behind this kind of idolatry begins by not recognizing what is plain to them, that there is a God that has created the world. And in that proclamation through his creation, his eternal power and divine nature is proclaimed. So much that God says that they are without excuse, that even though they know these particular things... They did not honor God and give thanks to them. So before we start really cutting on the strangeness of of people worshiping idols, we need to think that where are we associated with those who do not give God his due honor in thanksgiving? I think that we quickly become those who are exposed to be guilty that we often do not give God the proper honor in thanksgiving that is due to him. And so therefore, being consumed by that kind of ideology and thinking and lifestyle, their hearts were darkened. 
And they became fools. They began to ex- exchange what glory belonged to God, and they gave it to things that resembled his creation. It says, therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their own hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled, now catch this, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is the nature of the heart of this kind of idolatry. This is the ideology that is behind what is going on in Ephesus. And it's important for us not to just look at the surface of what's going on in the statues, but to look at what's going on in the heart of of the people. And we see that the response of what's coming about to happen with this confusion is being provoked because their hope and their sustenance is not in God, but is really ultimately in themselves in this deception that there is some other God. There are plenty of demons and powers. But there is no God who provides these things. There is no other God who is over life and breath. We've already heard Paul tell those in Greece that there is only one most high God who has that particular power. And so we begin to see these things come to the surface in their reaction as their gods are beginning to be laid low. Like God has done throughout all of history. He has laid low the gods of mankind. And the response shows that it comes from the works of the flesh. That there is confusion. They are enraged. They are chanting these phrases over and over again, proclaiming their God and their ideology. And they are filled with confusion so much that they don't even know what they're doing anymore. Does that look like any kind of writing that's been going on in our country and throughout our world? In the last few years, it's very much like that, that there are these gods of ideas that are being presented and people are getting to the point where they are just in chaos, screaming and chanting and being violent beyond any kind of control. It is very much in the world that we live in today. I love that verse there in 32. It says, now some cried out one thing and some another For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. But the way the church, the proclamation of the church, and the life of ministry of the church disturbed their idolatry, disturbed their worship, 
and disturbed the ideology and principles that they believe to be significant. Their particular virtues, their particular meaning, their values, their morals, their standards were ultimately for their glory. It's completely out of control. Two hours of chanting when Alexander tried to get up to speak. That It shows here that they're like, you know, Paul, you need to just stay back. There's no reason to get involved in this particular fray. And Alexander, we don't know what Alexander was going to say. We don't know if he was pro-Christian or if he was just going to make a defense for the Jews. He doesn't even get to speak. He starts to move his hand and start. And then for two hours, they just kept chanting the same thing. That's the kind of craziness that we see. But we don't just see it on the news. We don't just see it in our streets. We see it in our conversations with people. We see it in our dialogues with people who have opposing ideas. And so it's very much an activity that we're involved in today that the whole concept of discourse is gone. That is just screaming and yelling and talking points and memes. Screaming over the other. There's this interruption of Alexander. He can't even speak. This is the result and revealing of the corrosion and death of the religion that was practiced by those in Ephesus. Now, the interesting thing here is that before this moment, it was a very orderly situation, a very profitable situation. People were, they're not looking for chaos. They don't celebrate chaos and confusion. They're wanting to bring these idols into their home so that their home could be blessed, that they would have peace, that they would have fruitfulness, and that they would have profitability. They're hoping for good things for a peaceful way to live their life. But in this particular moment, we get the blessing of having the guys, the counterfeit, removed for a moment to actually see what is behind the religion that they are worshiping. There's a loss of all reason and order. There is this riotous loss of control so that they may be able to contain their profit and gain, their security and sustenance, their comfort, their hope, their power. And to continue to live in their life of worship and service for their ideology. But they have been exposed in this moment. It exposes the real nature of the idolatry. Much like the explosive response in the demons or the demon in the previous narrative. But the Christians, they've already done their work. This is not a situation where they're highlighting how the Christians responded to the chaos of the pagans. The Christians started the problem. Their life in proclamation is what disturbed. It's more of a focus of what was already being proclaimed, what they were already doing, and then therefore it was the response to them acting that way. Now today in our particular culture, we are focused more on how to respond to the loudness of the pagans. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't respond, but look at what's going on here. The way they are assembling together, being disciples in the word, proclaiming the truth to all nations. They are involved in the work and the life of the church, and it is causing a contrasting disturbance to the confusion. We are playing catch-up. In fact, in the middle of the confusion, we are actually breaking away from assembling. We're breaking away from discipleship. We're spending less time together in worship. 
to our God. We're spending less time being discipled by the word and less time. And yes, it's true. Everyone is noticing these statistics. We are doing less time in evangelizing that truth to the people who are around us. We are kept, kept, we're getting very much involved, though, in the chanting and the being loud. We like getting on Facebook. We like being able to, to, to have a response. We like having some kind of Instagram post or tweet, tweet that can respond to the craziness. And I'm not saying that that is not a necessary part of what we should be involved in also, but we spend a lot of time really taking on the same kind of methods and responses that is coming from the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. James chapter 3, something we can always keep reading over and over again. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. The reason why this is true and should be the character of our lives is because in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 33, we are told that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. We see the response here that this worship of a fake and false God is actually a worship of a live and still active demonic force. And that confusion that bears forth from it is something that is very significant and still very active amongst those in the church and still very active amongst those here in our own hearts. We still carry much of jealousy and selfish ambition in our own hearts. We know that. We need to be looking for the reality of how we are still those who are entrenched in this kind of idolatry but looking instead for the harvest of righteousness that is sown by peace, that we should be asking for and praying for peaceable and gentle, reasonable fruit before the Lord. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. The life of the church should be in contrast to this particular life of idolatry. It should be the things that might provoke this kind of action. And it should be something that we see, and we have seen throughout history, that it will provoke. But the question that we should have in our lives, are we acting as the church militant? Because we are the church triumphant? Or are we, as R.C. Sproul has, has coined, are we the church quiescent? meaning the church that is basically quiet and stagnant in maintaining a status quo? Do we desire to be pleasing so much to the world's ideology that we are the church quiescent instead of the church militant? And it shouldn't be that our way of just fighting the world's paganism is that we get louder at the abortion mill, there's different techniques to how to minister to people. And there's some techniques that are to try to talk and speak truth and to try to interact relationally with the people that are going in there. And then there's some who are trying to appease and not have sin be in any kind of their dialogue. But then there's also this other group that are basically matching. As soon as the people get loud, we just get louder. And they get louder and we get louder and it just keeps getting louder and louder. Now, that is magnifying throughout the nation in good and bad ways. We see more Christians going out in front of abortion mills to minister the gospel. But we see different techniques. We see all three of those laid out in probably another four or five different subcategories. But there are those who are acting like the church quiescent by not really having any kind of significant impact. They just feel this guilt and they want to go out there and they want to try to, to, to soften the blow of what the proclamation of of the law has to say, but then there's some out there that are basically adopting the same concepts and the same processes of what the world is doing, which is creating nothing but greater confusion. And while this is going on, church attendance is getting less. People are spending less time worshiping God. People are spending less time being discipled in the word of God. This was not the way. The way was what they were doing before, as Paul proclaimed. They were those who were centered in the worship of Jesus Christ, in the proclamation of his word, in living out that life. And if you want to see the direct result of what Paul believes is the way for those in Ephesus, is the same for us. Go read the book of Ephesians. Go read about the impact of Diana and Artemis throughout the history of, of that religion. And then go read Ephesians. And that is the battle calling for us. And it is not to be in a greater place of confusion, but to be in a place of proclamation of truth. But there's a hopefulness here for us, brothers and sisters. We are still the church militant and the church triumphant because of what Christ has done. There is a hopefulness for those who actually come to Christ and hold to his word that we know that Jesus said it himself. It says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In John chapter 15. What is it that we love? Are we longing to love Christ that we're willing to be hated by the world? Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 
But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. Are we those who are disciples keeping the word and worshiping according to the word? And if so, the world will hate us. There will be that conflict. There will be this kind of reaction. We should anticipate seeing the hidden confusion being exposed in these outbursts. But know in verse 26 of that same chapter, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me. From the beginning, we get to bear witness about Jesus through this kind of conflict and interaction. It should be a hopeful thing that us coming here, even today, for those of you who have come, even in your tiredness and even in your difficulty, that these are the battle callings for God's people. This is the battle calling of the church militant is to come and worship. You've got to know that that is what the demonic forces are desiring his church to stop doing is this here. And this here is even more important than a tweet that will go viral. The working together in the word that you do each week together as you go and study the word with each other. And as you deal with one, one another and you pray with one another and you, as you sin and forgive and repent to one another... That is a more powerful work of this militant calling that we have because of the triumphant work that Jesus did. And if you remember, as he accomplished this hope for us, that kind of confusion was also there. Here we have in the very last paragraph, which was kind of hard for me because this, this town clerk, was he gets involved in this conflict and he, he gets everybody to calm down. And he says, you know what, you know, they're, not really, they're not really coming after us. Everyone just needs to calm down. It's going to be okay. We'll fight this in the courts. And he dismissed the assembly of people who were about to riot. What you see here, I think, when you look at this passage in its fullness, is that they were already in a kind of a, a, a faux peace beforehand. And because of the work of the church, there was a reaction of confusion and chaos. But then they're like, you know what, let's settle back down. Let's get back into our turtle shell here and regroup. And we'll battle this in the courtroom. And we have that kind of thing here in our society also. You see people either fighting this ideology in the streets or we're fighting in the courtroom. And those are places that we do have to fight this out. We have to be on the streets and we have to be in the courtroom. But it all begins, we know that our actual calling begins by our worship of God and our discipleship in Jesus Christ. That's the primary battleground for us. And it should flow out into areas of our life on the street and the courts. But right now, even though we have Christians in the courts and we have Christians standing on the sidewalks, we are losing Christians in the church. We have to remember that Jesus' posture here is what we hope in. You know, in Matthew chapter 27, it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, which is Pilate, 
And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you do not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not, simple, not to even one single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they all shouted, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather the riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am not innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the peoples answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. We see this as a very sad moment, and we see that there are those who are wanting and actually cowered and backed down, but wanted to see Jesus be able to overtake this particular fight, to win in the courtroom and also in the street and with the sword. But Jesus took the cross. Our focus needs to be the cross. Our focus needs to be the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of that victory. That we know is more powerful than Pilate. More powerful than the riots that are there. This is what we need to be preaching and focused on. This is where we need to be the loudest. Is in our praise. In our worship of him. This is where we get to be. Both the church militant and triumphant. By taking on the power of the resurrection. Let that be our hope and our calling. And realize that there will be seasons of rioting. And there will be seasons of silence. But for our church, for Christ's church, there should be forever praise and glory. That is our eternal end. Let us pray.